uh, I got to jump right in because I think I want to get through a couple of chapters. I don't want to leave chapter five by itself. So uh, I'm going to fly here this morning. So just hang with me real quick here. Plus, I want to hear that song again. So uh, uh, we over the past uh, few weeks, we've been going through First Corinthians. We're up to chapter four. But Paul is really talking about the division. He's written a letter to the church at Corinth. He's in Ephesus, but he's lit, written... Actually, this is the second letter. I, I, in, our, in the introduction to 1 Corinthians, I said there was another letter. We really don't know what the content was about, and there's no copies of it like there is this one. But there was a previous letter, and he refers to that today. But in, these, in this letter, he's talking about the factions. The first division that he was talking about is you guys are listening to, some of you are following Apollos, some of you are following me, some of you are following Peter. It's not about that. It's not about that. The answer, that, that his answer to that was the message is greater than the messenger. And that was the first faction that he talked about. And then the second one that he talked about was the difference between worldly wisdom and spiritual wisdom. You can be wise about worldly things, but if you have the Spirit of God inside of you, then he will give you spiritual wisdom, and that can only come from God. And then last week we talked about walking, about people inside the church, those who are believers. You have two choices. You can either walk according to the flesh, or you can walk according to the Spirit. And he was encouraging them to continue to walk by the Spirit. And then today he's talking about apostleship, an apostle is one that, who has a ministry that literally hung out with Jesus. Paul didn't literally hang out with Jesus, but he had this conversion experience on the road to Damascus, spent the next few years uh, just kind of downloading everything from the Spirit that Jesus' ministry displayed here on earth. And so Paul is considered an apostle of Jesus Christ because of that spiritual download. It's a pretty cool thing. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, let's get into it. Verse 1, it says this. A person should think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. That's so cool, the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not conscious of anything against myself, and I'm not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, honestly, I, I, I'll be straight up honest with you. Uh, as I'm preparing this week and going, okay, I'm going to talk about 1 Corinthians 4. I'm going to get into 1 Corinthians 5, and 1 Corinthians 5 is, uh, oh, speed bump. I'm reading the word to you today. And the evil ones just like beating me up. How are they going to interpret what my message is to them this week based upon 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Don't jump ahead yet. But I'm really not concerned about what you think about me because I feel just like Dale did up here. I'm not that I feel, I know that the Spirit is leading me through this message. And I'm going to trust Him. And so. This is his deal, not mine. All right, you with me? And I think that's what Paul is saying. The point, the point is right here is that he's devalu devaluing that which is 
human judgment. Like, I, like everybody in this room has an opinion about what I just said right there. I'm not really concerned about your opinion about what I just said there. In light of that, he's saying, he's, he says, I don't even judge myself, which hardly means that he doesn't like periodically do a self-assessment, that he doesn't listen to other people's opinions. I listen, I listen, I hear, I think about things that I say, I review my messages, I, I listen. He realizes that his conscience can be clear and yet it would not necessarily acquit him in God's eyes. There's a a popular proverb that says, a clear conscience was a sign of a faulty memory. And if we're honest, we would all say that's true, unless, unless we're speaking about the conscience that is clear because we've been forgiven by our sins in Christ Jesus. I think that's the hardest part for us as Christians is to be able to forget what we've done. Because you see, Jesus has already done that when he did that on the cross. When he died, he forgave us of, his, of our sins, and he forgot them as far as the east is from the west. They're no longer part of our lives. Like when we die and we go to heaven and you think that there's going to be this great judgment on our sins, they've already been dealt with. Everything that you've done, doing, or going to do has already been dealt with. He died one time, and him dying on the cross, his blood being poured out, was the one sacrifice that took care of all sin from Adam to the future. Amen. <laughs> Got one amen out of that. Verse 5, it says, So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will reveal the intentions of the hearts, and then praise will come to each one from God. Our, our, task, our task is not to do God's rewarding and condemning work for him. That's, that's not my job. I, Al, you don't know how much I appreciate you saying, uh, talking and referring about my heart, my heart, that you have to know my heart. Because I can get up here and deliver a message, and if you don't know my heart, you can interpret different than it was intended. I also believe that uh, we're supposed to judge one another. Yeah, I said that. I, like, I judge you. Not in a critical, well, maybe in a critical way, but in a very loving way. And you do the same thing for me. If I'm doing something wrong, I would expect you to say something to me. Uh, You do that out of love. So when he's talking about judging, he's not talking about uh, you can't judge people. He's saying don't judge them based upon their behavior, but judge them based upon how God loves them and cares for them, and you can help them. That's so important for when we get to chapter 5. You got to know what he said right here. Just leave the master to do his job of condemnation. It's his job. We're just going to be faithful stewards. Verse 6, it says, Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. Ah, 
that's a big proverb that he just quoted right there that was popular among his people at the time. It says, nothing beyond what is written. There's no one better than Paul to be able to quote that proverb. Because, see, Paul was a Pharisee, and he knew God's law. He knew Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Leviticus was in there. He knew it. But then the Pharisees believed that that wasn't enough to protect them, so they needed to write more laws, kind of like what we do today in our society. How do we protect ourselves? Create more laws. This is what the Pharisees did. If God's not going to protect us, we're going to be taken captivity by the Egyptians. We're going to be taken into captivity by the Babylonians. We need to create more laws to protect ourselves so God doesn't pass judgment on us. So what did they do? They created the oral law. This is the oral law. Trust me, you don't want to read this. It's very, if you've read Leviticus, this is about 10 times worse. But this is the oral law. And guess what? Paul knew the oral law. He knew this as much as he knew God's law. This is man's law. Man wrote this. It's not God's law. This is the one Jesus loved to break right here. Like when they accused him of not washing their hands and things like that, that was in this book, not this book. And so Paul's like, of of all the things, nothing beyond what is written, written in the scripture, Paul knew exactly what he was talking about. But in this context right here, The man not only knew what God's law was, but in context, Paul's speaking about the add-ons to the gospel message. Do you you know what I'm talking about? Like, the church likes to add on to the gospel message about what our responsibility and what our duties are as Christians. We call these add-ons. And Paul's literally saying, no more add-ons. This is the good news. Jesus came. He died for you. He sent his spirit to live inside of you. Trust the spirit. Walk by the spirit. Period. That's it. No more add-ons. Jesus alone. Then he says, The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If, in fact, you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? I have a seminary degree. Whoopee. I have a master's in religious education. Big deal. It's no big deal. That doesn't make me any better than the students sitting on the front row right here. They have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead living in them that I have living in me. And because of that spirit, I'm able to read this word and I'm able to understand it, and I'm able to live according to that spirit. And he says, don't you realize that everything that you have is from God? All those free tickets, Dale, they may come from your friends, but they're truly from God. Everything I have comes from him. Verse 8, it says, You are already full. You've got everything that you need. You are already rich. You have begun to reign as kings without us. And I wish you did reign so that we could reign with you. Paul goes into a little sympathy tirade here. 
For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in the last place. Like men condemned to die. This is Paul being real with his church. Like, I hope that I can come up here just like Al did and be real with you and not be condemned. This is what Paul, he's, he's laying himself on the line right here. He says, we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. We are fools for Christ, but, but you, you're wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. He's talking about the apostles, those that are out there teaching the word of God, speaking about Jesus, they're just getting lambasted. They're getting beat up. They're getting run out of town. He says, up to the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth like everyone's garbage. I think Paul is saying we've been humbled. We've been humbled. This is where we are. He is showing his heart. I give up everything to do what I'm doing. I don't care what you think about me. You may think that I'm the scum of the earth delivering this message. You may think that I'm wrong. You may think that I'm evil. Paul's like, it's all good. Verse 14, he says, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children, for you have countless instructors in Christ. But you don't have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul's like saying, I was your teacher. I was the one that showed you the way of the Christian life. In a, in a culture of like honor and shame, the perception that Paul would have been intentionally shaming the Corinthians here would have been a serious charge. Though because of his honestly special relationship with them, he had earned the right to speak to them because they knew his heart. They knew that he loved them. Therefore, he can speak directly to them about the things that they're doing wrong in their own personal lives and as a group. He says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is why I have sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus. Not his imperfect behavior, but his ways in Jesus Christ. Just as I teach everywhere in every church. I believe that any believer, after numbers of year and life experiences and growth in Christianity should be able to say to a young Christian, hey, why don't you come hang out with me? Why don't you just 
do what I do for a while. I told you last week about my friend Derek. And I took Derek with me for 10 days. Just hang out with me. Look, I'm not perfect. I want, you know, I want you to see that I blow it, that I act out of my flesh sometimes. But honestly, I'm going to have conversations about Jesus with you. I'm going to have conversations with Jesus about other people. Jesus is... It's it. Come hang out with me. Watch what I do. I have interns do the same thing. Come hang out with me. This is all Paul's saying. Watch me apologize when I have to seek forgiveness. And I have to pick up the pieces and then I move on. Watch how I do that. Watch. He says, now some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk, but the power of those who are arrogant. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod? (laughs) Should I come with a rod? Or in love and a spirit of gentleness? I've been to churches where they came at you with the rod. I like what you said, Al, about having community and just loving one another. The power of the kingdom of God, he says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. The power of the kingdom of God is love and a gentleness spirit. That's what it is. It's the love and the gentleness of spirit that earns you the audience to hear the truth. How are these kids ever going to know Jesus unless somebody's hanging out with them and just loving them as they are? And when I say kids, I'm probably talking about the whole room. I I want my brother my brother, to know Jesus. So I'm going to love him, no matter what I'm dealt. No matter what I'm dealt, I'm going to love him, because it's the only way that he might hear the good news of the gospel. It's the only way. He's not going to hear it through me condemning him. Okay, here we go. Chapter 5. This is a difficult topic. Um, I mean, these are. This is a difficult topic that Paul addressed in a Greco-Roman world, where there were very few sexual taboos. All right, they were very difficult issues for us to address today as well. And the most we can hope to do is to be faithful to the scripture as best that we understand it. That's what you're going to get from me today. Recognizing that on many controversial topics, other well-intentioned godly believers will take different approaches. I get it. Verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. 
the Gentiles were the corrupt people. And they don't even agree with this. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Oh, that's the topic you're going to choose, Paul? A man sleeping with his father's wife. That would be his stepmother. This specific case at hand is kind of uh, obviously dealing with incestuous behavior here. The fact that Paul speaks of a man having his father's wife suggests not his biological mother, but probably a stepmother. And because second wives, even at those times, uh, first wives, but certainly second wives in the ancient Greco-Roman world, were often considerably much younger than the husband. Like, think about it for a second. They had the first wife that was probably young, and as they got older, they decided that they were done with her. So they then went and got a younger wife. That was acceptable. Just saying, it was acceptable. So now the son may be the same age as his stepmother. And it would seem okay that he would naturally fall in love with his stepmother because she's the same age. But it says right here, the Greco-Roman Gentiles didn't even tolerate that. It was not acceptable. What does our society tolerate? He says, and you are arrogant. In other words, you are okay with this. He's talking to the church. You're okay with this. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Oh, here we go. The Corinthian church right here has not reacted properly. In fact, they have reacted profoundly and improperly by being proud of the fact that this thing is going on. They're absolutely okay with it. By what contorted logic could you see this as a matter of pride? He says, you're, you're arrogant about this. We have this thing that's going around today. Here we go. A statement that says, love is love. Which basically says, I can do whatever I want. Love is love. Well, you know, sitting in this room, we can sit here and break love down into philo, brotherly love, or agape love that's from Christ, and this uh, commitment love, and there's eros love, which is an erotic love, and there's all sorts of different loves. So to say love is love is true, but then again... What are you really saying? It's just giving you a stamp of approval to do whatever you want. Think about this for a second. I was thinking about this. Uh, TV back in the 50s, Ricky and Lucy didn't even sleep in the same bed together. Right? Y'all, some of you remember this. And then there was the big deal where they actually got into the same bed together. That was a big deal in that day. 
Then when I was a young child, there was a comedy that came along called Soap. And Billy Crystal was the first homosexual represented on TV. I was not allowed to watch Soap. Because at the time, homosexuality was illegal and just appalling to society. Now, 10% of the characters on TV are homosexual. Today, on Netflix, we get cuties. Which is basically child pedophilia. If that's the introduction, what happens in 20 years? It's appalling to you now. But what happens in 20 years? Are you tracking with me? What do we tolerate is the question. I mean, to come up here and to even talk about homosexuality, as it says in the scripture, uh, it can be labeled as a hate message today. And probably uh, it has to do with an issue that will come to the forefront here in chapter 6, namely the church's misunderstanding of their freedom in Christ. Paul will quote what appears to be kind of a Corinthian slogan in chapter 6, verse 12, when he says, all things are lawful. I'm telling you, that is true. All things are lawful. You can go out and do whatever you want. And there's a sense in this age that it is now under the law, that under the law, the way of the old covenant, or the Mosaic period, that, that that was true. But it needs qualifications, as in chapter 6, verse 12, he also says, not all things are profitable. Not all things are... All, you're, you're free to do whatever you want, but not all things are profitable. You can do this. You're free. You're free in Christ. Clearly, uh, this is an example that is far from a healthy exercise of any Christian freedom. We teach freedom in here. But we also teach there's two choices. You can walk by the Spirit or you can walk by the flesh. That's the whole thing. Watch, in verse 3 it says, Even though I'm absent in the body, I'm present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That's brutal. So that this spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You see, ancient communities were so tightly knit and they had this like formal way of ostracizing people publicly by shaming them and causing them to be out of fellowship that somehow that it might shock their system that they would repent from their behavior and turn back to the ways of the Lord. He says, verse 6, your boasting is not good Don't you know that a little leaven 
leavens the whole batch of dough. You know what leaven is. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. If it becomes accepted behavior, it then becomes an agenda. If it becomes an accepted behavior, then it becomes an agenda. Then the agenda will infect the whole bunch. There's one agenda here. What's the one agenda? Jesus. That's it. Jesus alone. One agenda right here. Among perfect, among perfect believers who sometimes display imperfect behavior. You are perfect in Christ because that's the way that he made you. He made you perfect, but sometimes we still display imperfect behavior. But there's still one agenda, that's Jesus. I'm up here, one agenda, Jesus. I'm perfect because he made me perfect, but sometimes I act imperfect. Verse 8, it says, Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So then the question is asked, if we all still sin, how can we turn this person over to Satan? Go back to like chapter 4, verse 5. He says, so don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will bo both bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. You see, it's a matter of the hearts. I personally believe the difference is repentance. Having a repentant heart. Is Jesus the agenda or is it your sexuality that is the agenda? Is Jesus the agenda or is your self-indulgence the agenda? Is Jesus the agenda or is your greed the agenda? And then he says, here's how you deal with it. I wrote to you in a letter, this is the previous letter that I was telling you about, I wrote to you a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I don't know what the content of that letter was. We don't have that letter, but obviously he dealt with the fact, and then there was confusion, and so now he had to come along and write this letter, which we've labeled 1 Corinthians. He says, I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, otherwise you would have to leave the world. Like, if that's what I meant, then you guys have to go isolate yourselves and just do your own thing, and then if anybody blows it, then you're kicking them out as well. He says, but actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, a believer, and is sexually immoral or greedy an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Man, he just went through the whole checklist. Do not even eat with such a person. For somebody in here, he's saying, if they continually practice this sinful behavior, isolate them. Disassociate with them. If they come in here with another agenda besides Jesus... Protect the shepherd. Protect the sheep. The fact that he uses the language that he does in the context of people who are certain things as opposed to like 
just specific actions suggests that he's not talking about like one-time offenses. He's talking about people that are practicing this, practicing this on a regular basis. I get it. Sometimes in here, we walk by our flesh and we make bad choices, and sometimes it may be for a long season. I get it. It happens. But what he's really saying is, go back to the heart. If this, if you don't know their heart, and their heart is like a whole other agenda, he's he's not saying just leave them alone. He's saying, well, well think about this. When they, he'd say, do not eat with them. Eating was an experience back then. They would have them come to their home. It would be hours and. They'd spend time doing pitch-ins together and taking the Lord's Supper and everything else and associating. Now when he says, don't eat with them, um, I have friends who practice, who practice on a regular basis worldly behaviors. I have friends. I'm still able to say I love you to them. I'm still in contact with them. I don't think he's sitting there saying just like shun them and kick them out and don't ever speak to them. How are they ever going to like have a chance to repent if the Christians just walk away from them? I can still eat a meal with them. I can still hang out with them. I still try to have impact on their lives even though I don't agree with their practices. How are they ever going to hear about the goodness of the gospel if I totally disassociate myself with them? And in these last couple of verses, for what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. He's literally quoted Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 7. It says, you must purge the evil from you. But take it back even further into Genesis. Quoting the story of Sarah with her slave Hagar and her son Abraham and Ishmael, when they were sent out into the wilderness, Paul speaks of expelling the wicked from among you. These are difficult words to apply and to say to you. Because I get your sensitivity to specific issues. I get it. You're dealing with it in your families. You're dealing with it in your friendships. I understand. But to me, it's about examining the heart and loving people where they are. I'm not the one that's going to change people. I'm not. I'm not going to change you. I'm not going to change anybody. It's the Spirit that does that. So I have to trust the Spirit. You realize that complete disassociation usually fails bad. It's not good for people to be totally disassociated with. The removal of a person from a leadership role. Look, I've been involved in churches where the leader has failed. 
And we've had to like move them out of the leadership position. It's one of the reasons I'm here today. Because at some point I may publicly fail you. I don't know. I don't know. But I wouldn't expect you to give me a severance pay and send me away to bring someone else in here. I might not be up here teaching. I expect you to uh, help me. Yeah, help me. I would expect that. That's why I'm here. Be in a community. We're going to fail. We're going to make bad choices. Look, we're going to mourn the sin. We even judge the sin. And we can even remove the sin. But we're still going to love the person. That's what we're about here. You can do it in your own strength. Or you can do it in his strength. Jesus, I pray that the message uh, that you have given here in this letter, that it is totally understood not only by the people in this room, but those that are hearing it in other ways, that your message is very clear. And that you love people, and your spirit is our guide and our direction. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Dale, come up here, buddy. Uh, I want you to play one more time. For those of you that came in late and you missed this, my friend wrote this song, and I believe it was because the Spirit gave it to him. I'm going to get y'all set back up here. Thanks, you, you good? I think so. And when he's done with the song, we're done. So uh, thanks for being here today, and uh, we'll be right back here next Sunday. I love you guys. I hope you heard my heart today. And this is Dale's heart. I think we're good. What I didn't tell you about this song um, when I was writing this was these words I know came from God, but they've been delivered to me through Rusty as I know you guys have gotten so much out of him as I have. And, um, but really, um, a lot of people under the Levner roof, um, I've just learned so much and been so thankful for each and every one of you. And there's a lot of leadership uh, in this community, as Al said. It's pretty, pretty cool. I got the wrong words in front of me.
Let's try this again. just breed strife my own strength there's condemnation my own strength there is no life I tried and failed to make it on my own but I know that I need you to make it home in your strength I have found life in your strength I am free You pulled me from the jaws of this wretched sea I know that I can't make it alone There's only life in you You saved me from the darkness of the tree I found kindness, goodness, faithfulness Love, joy and peace Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, love, joy, and peace. In my strength there is no progress. In my strength only decline. In my strength there is no joy, no fruit, no water into wine. I tried and failed to make it on my own. I know that I need you to make it home In your strength I have found life In your strength I am free Jesus pulled me from the jaws of this wretched sea I know that I can't go it alone There's abundant life in you You saved me from the evil of the tree Found kindness, goodness, faithfulness Love, joy, and peace Kindness, goodness, faithfulness Love, joy, and peace In your strength I'm strong and I'm a saint and I am your strength I finally learned my true identity identity in your strength in your strength I have found life in your strength I am free Jesus pulled from the jaws of this wretched sea I know that I can't make it alone There's only life in you Save me from the darkness of the tree I 
found kindness, goodness, faithfulness, love, joy, and peace. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, love, joy, and peace.